Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, member Philly's Finest shares his path from a liberal arts college to working in Nomura's structured products desk, how he got promoted to associate, how much he was paid, and why he decided to leave it all behind to start his own company. Enjoy. Philly's Finest, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Patrick. So it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a quick summary of your background. Sure. So um, I went to, I guess you'd call it a non-target, um, small liberal arts school, um, and jumped into an internship in sales and trading, um, which converted into a full-time offer um, at Nomura. So I joined their structured products desk um, for uh, to be a sales guy. Um, spent, I guess, three and a half years doing that um, before leaving to start my first startup um, and have been in the startup world ever since. Cool. So let's go back to the liberal arts college because I went to one as well. I was at Williams. So uh, we have a little bit in common there. Um, so was there any, in terms of like how you landed that internship that turned it, that sales and trading internship that turned into a full-time offer? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Was it junior year, typical, you know, did you start your sophomore year? How did you know, like, trading was something you wanted to do. Yeah. And I'd actually be curious to hear your thoughts about this. Cause I think that obviously Williams, um, you probably consider it a target school at this point, but, uh, we did have a bit of an on-campus presence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started sophomore year, um, and got an internship in private equity, um, just basically through networking. Um, but you know, one thing that, uh, I've kind of seen is as, uh, as recruiting cycles moved earlier and earlier, um, you know, it's, it's almost the kids at liberal arts schools, uh, are at an advantage. Um, I mean, I don't know how the numbers exactly work out, but for us, we had Barclays, Goldman, Nomura, and a few others on campus. Um, and given how many fewer kids are competing for those spots every year, um, it seems like those that were smart and networking and had their, had their shit together, um, could actually seize those roles over competing with, you know, maybe hundreds of kids at a bigger school that might be a target. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think um, at Williams, it was a similar thing, although the feed, the the ties into Wall Street, into finance in general are pretty strong from Williams, um, I'm sure, um, for your school as well. But yeah, it, we did have a, a lot of on-campus recruiting. The timing of when I, I graduated wasn't great. It was 2002, so it was right after 9-11, the recession. <laughs> it was pretty bad. So, um, But in other more normal years, I would say that, um, yeah, if you, if you're interested in it and you go after it, it's, it's a, a pretty good, um, 
pretty good place to be. Small, so small yeah, kind I mean, of liberal arts college. At places like Williams and Colby, um, you know, the likelihood that an alum will talk to you just because you mm-hmm. have that on your resume, I think, is it increases a lot. I know friends who come from, you know, these bigger schools, um, and the alums are the kind of network they're wanting into. Just they can't, they don't have the time to talk to every kid that reaches out. Right. Um, but for example, whenever anybody reaches out to me, I'm always happy to talk to them um, just because of how, how much smaller it is. Yeah, no, for sure. So you kind of did your own hustling for sophomore summer. Sounds like you got a private equity internship. Was that just like through LinkedIn? How were you doing that networking? Um, so that was networking actually. Like alum, um, alum and stuff from, like that or friends and family? From alumni networking uh, okay. into a conversation with someone who an alumni put me in touch with, um, who's actually from Philly, where I'm from, as you can tell by the username, mm-hmm. um, which converted into, into, the, into the internship offer. Got it. And so what did you do there? Was it mostly just like busy work or just helping them do like review Sims and stuff like that? Or Yeah. I mean, I would say that that shop is uh, much more forward looking um, and uses their interns because they think that eventually um, it'll be good for the interns to appreciate them having had that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of, um, you know, reading Sims and bringing notes to them, even if they were on past deals um, and just trying to learn about the process. So they were they were kind enough to put us through several of the training the street, Wall Street prep sort of modeling courses. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're really not trying to use us um, in the traditional sense where you'd use interns for, for grunt work. Um, obviously a lot of us a lot of us were actually sophomores, so that's um, great. Probably wouldn't wouldn't have been very useful to do that anyway. Awesome. Sounds like a great experience. So you finished that up. Do you feel like that internship really helped you in the the summer analyst recruiting the junior year? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think that the what I got most out of it was just sort of learning um, what to say and what not to say, mm-hmm. um, and just general exposure to the terminology. Which you know, no matter how much you study in school, it's, it's pretty hard to get how people actually use the terms that we use in finance. Right. Um, and I think that it, it gives a sense of humility that you know college kids often think that they know so much about trading or IB from what they read on. Wall Street always just everywhere else, um, and uh, it's, it's a bit humbling to be amongst the actual professionals. Yeah, and then you see how little you actually know. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So I think um, so. You kind of head into junior year. You're is trading kind of on your radar here at this point? You know, you did a private equity internship. Was IB there? Was what was the thought process going in there? And then curious, was it still on campus recruiting? So the firms were coming actually on campus for the interviews, or was it all like I don't think the video interviews had come out. Yeah, right. So it was still kind of they were coming on and doing the interviews right there, correct? Yeah. So um, for me, I was still a bit undecided about whether I was going to go the IB route or the sales and trading route. Mm-hmm. Um, I was basically just taking every interview that I got. Yep. Um, uh, just because Colby, you know, the, the easiest way in for, for me and for my peers was the seats that were set aside for Colby kids. So, you know, they had a defined number of those for IB and a defined number for sales and training. Um, so I just applied to all of them, basically. Got it. Um, and then so, was, like, was, uh, it, was it around, like, 10 resume drops on campus around that? Or 20? Yeah, exactly. And how many do you think you probably, would, like, oh, yeah, how many think you converted to the first little, round? A little more than 10. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I had 15 interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and So you did it. You had a good conversion. You had a really good conversion from resume drop to interviews first rounds yeah why do you think that was why do you think that was 
just the internship? Uh, I the think private because by, by then I had done so much networking um, that I think I didn't do a single resume drop that was just into the general pool. Um, Got I'd it. always had someone who I'd networked my way into, um, trying to put a note on my resume. Um, mostly through, mostly, receipts. mostly through alum still. Mostly through alums. Yep. And again, LinkedIn or just was the school giving you some, just their contacts directly and you're just emailing them. I think that the, I mean, at least for us, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, but mm -hmm. the alumni webpage and resources are, are totally underutilized. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's uh, it's a lot more compelling to receive an email that you can see someone's put some thought into versus LinkedIn, which honestly is, is obviously a, a great medium for connecting with people. But, you know, it runs a risk that whoever is on the receiving end just isn't checking it that often. Yeah, fair. Um, That's fair. Yeah, I think people, I think LinkedIn's a great place if you can't find it elsewhere. But if you can get the emails, it's more valuable. The open rates are probably higher and more frequent, obviously. Especially if you structure it in such a way where it's short, punchy, to the point, and it's not like... To give you them your life story, <laughs> um, yeah. which keep, is a big mistake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, okay, so you're coming into you're you're taking a bunch of interviews. You had like around ten first rounds um, or fifteen first rounds. How did it go in terms of performance, IB versus sales and trading? Did you feel like you were underprepared, overprepared? Um, yeah, tell me a little about that process and how you improved. Um, I definitely feel like the first few went very poorly, um, mm -hmm. and the results indicate that because I didn't, was not invited back, mm -hmm. um, for super days, um, et cetera there. But I think I did better in the banking interviews than I did in the trading ones, just because, you know, having been on the other side of those interviews, um, and I'm sure you know this as well, it's, it's when, when someone in sales and trading is unprepared for an interview. And oftentimes someone just grabs you and says, Hey, can you do these five interviews? You don't have defined questions as you do in investment banking. So you just sort of ask them whatever it might be. And if you get a trader that's having a bad day, um, <laughs> as I did in several instances, uh, you can really get smoked. Yeah. So they're just testing you. They're asking you like all these crazy brain teasers and stuff, or was it more sp product specific about what they were training to see what you knew? It was uh, it was a lot of brain teasers. I was actually pretty surprised, and yeah. I think this has probably changed since I was interviewing. But um, no, there's still brain teasers. There's still brain teasers. They're still there. Um, maybe less so, but um, so okay. Tell me a little bit about. Just so, did you get a, multiple offers? Was this was uh, Nomura the the one offer you got, or was it like the last? At least for me, Rothschild was like my last offer, my last interview. And granted, it was 2002, so it was a tough year but it was literally the last chance i had and i, I grabbed a, a seat was it similar to you so uh when the dust settled i had uh nomura on the sales and trading side and one banking offer mm -hmm. um that i would say is you know not bulge bracket but um you know sort of the next tier down yep um and having talked to you know at this point probably 200 people in the industry mm -hmm. um and sort of knowing that I wanted to use this as a stepping stone, mm -hmm. um, opted for, for the lifestyle um, and what I would learn on the trading floor. Obviously, you get more responsibility quicker if you can politic your way around a trading floor than you do in investment banking. Um, talk to me, so about, far, talk to me about that. Talk to me about that a little bit. That's interesting to me. We haven't yeah, had I too many people. Uh, we haven't had too many people in S&T on the, on the pod. We've had traders and stuff like that, but not like you know, not the sales and trade the sales side as much. Um, we've had more like prop traders and commodity traders, but not so much like the, you know, 
people who are, like you said, having to politic around. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that so people can get a better sense of what it's like day to day. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, one thing that goes pretty unsaid in sales and trading is, especially at a bank like Nomura, um, where there's a huge range of uh, quality in the, in the trading desks. Um, you know, we were pretty strong in mortgages. We were pretty strong in rates. Um, not so much in FX at the time that I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you don't always get your choices for when you're doing the rotation. Um, Got it. And for, for, me, for me, you know, as I was doing the rotation, it still wasn't clear who had headcount, who didn't. Um, so they ended up having to scrap all of that. I didn't actually rotate through mortgages during my internship. Uh, they made everyone do a full set of interviews um, when we got there. Um, so I think number one, if you're going into sales and trading, I, I think my advice would be to do a ton of diligence on what desks your bank is strongest at. Um, and from there, within that desk, what pods um, is there most upward mobility in? So I think you can, you can often find examples where there's a senior trader uh, trading some product. Uh, he might only have one junior guy. Um, and if you go in and, and take that junior role, um, you'll have a lot more responsibility just by definition of, of the team being lean than you would being, you know, the sixth guy on, on a, a bigger product's desk. Um, so I was fortunate enough. Um, I, I impressed, I guess, one of the top producers who took me under his wing on the sales side of things um, and then sort of coached me on what to do when there's accounts up for grabs, um, how to make sure I had sponsorship within some more senior levels of the firm. And it's, it's those kind of things that I think as you're paying your dues in investment banking, so to speak, uh, are a lot harder to access. Can you tell me a little bit more about the sales side and what how how students should think about that in terms of, you know, trading is, is trading, right? There's flow, you're actually doing, you're executing orders, stuff like that, right? Tell me about the sales side in terms of what your day-to-day is like. It's like, can you give me an example of like a day you'd come in, what would you be doing? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that, you know, much like trading the, the first year of sales, you will not be doing anything that's uh, particularly value add until you learn the ropes. Um, I think it's, it's hugely variant in terms of products, but for, for mortgages, we covered such a range of products um, from non-agency to agency, CLOs fell under mortgages, so it all SFX securities. Um, so you're trying to arrange things uh, and show at this point your boss's client list, uh, things that make sense from a risk and yield perspective. So you're actually sort of being the filter of information. Um, and you're going through the products that you have on offer and the products that are out there in the market available for bid um, and trying to match those up with what you know your clients uh, will be looking for, uh, both on the real money side and on the fast money side. So you're trying to digest and, and sort through and make sure that they have the best quality of information for the products that they care about. So tell me, um, tell me about, the, then, let's back up on that because I think that's, let's unpack that a little bit. So specifically when you're like looking through what your, your boss's clients want, is that like when we're, when we're talking clients, we're talking what fortune 500 companies everything from pensions endowments what what type of institutions are your are the, the clients typically hedge funds like what how should i think about so um it? would that be prime brokerage our desk, i think this our desk was a, a little bit unusual in a sense that mm-hmm. most of the salespeople covered both real money um meaning pension funds money managers insurance companies yep. um and hedge funds and the fast money clients mm-hmm. um so you know, we would cover a lot of the big 
West Coast money managers, um, insurance companies, and then on the flip side, people that are looking for higher yield would be the sort of New York-based hedge funds. The New York-based hedge funds. Okay. Um, and so specifically, when you're looking for information, is is your boss telling you like, hey, we need this type of issue. We're looking for this type of you know, security, this type of yield. And you're looking, you said, to what's out there on offer, but also what what is being created in-house? Or like, how should I, how should exactly. I think of that? Because, you know, per, explain it to me like I, I don't know anything because I know very little about sales training. So, so explain it to me because <laughs> explain it to me as if it's like my first day on the job, like, you know, the basics. So I, I come in there and you're like, this is what we do. We are, we are helping our clients get into the right type of risk reward securities or how should I think about it? That's, that's exactly right. Um, okay. And especially on the structured products desk, um, you know, you're taking something and you're breaking it out into multiple tranches. So you have a senior, lower yield, less risk tranche, obviously, um, that, you know, if we're talking about this at a super high level, would be directionally a fit for someone who isn't necessarily looking for high risk uh, leverage return. Um, and then the bottom piece of that, your uh, subordinate tranches mm-hmm. might have a much higher yield that would be a better fit. And that's, I, I, guess, I guess that in a nutshell is, is sort of the, the purpose of structuring. And as a, right? as a first break. year, you're really just learning a lot of that, learning the ropes. As a second year, what is, how does that change your, your responsibility? Like how are you actually, are you, like, what tools are you using? Is it all in Excel? Like what, is it all through Bloomberg Terminal? How should I be thinking? Like how are you screening all this data coming in? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of Excel. It's a lot of Bloomberg data. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at this point, uh, every trade your desk has ever done with a given client is going to be in your firm's record. Yep. Um, so I would say that the people that go above and beyond actually will pull up the bonds in Bloomberg, uh, will run the bonds uh, for non-agencies case. We use a tool called Intex mm-hmm. and try and figure out exactly why those clients like those particular bonds. Um, you know, what, what are the characteristics that made those appealing and can you replicate that? as you're looking and running bonds uh, that are coming out more continuously. And you say coming out, that's from other banks, that's from you guys, that's from everybody? Yeah, I mean, your, your bank is gonna create some, um, especially on the agency side of things, right. you have clients that will be selling them on what's called BWIX, which is bid wanted in competition, which is basically an auction. Got it. Um, and then you're, you're constantly working, um, at, at least when I was there for out of comp trades, which are bonds you can pull out from one client and sell to another, um, and, and not have to be um, fighting everybody on the street for that allocation competition. Fair. Okay. Thank you for that uh, <laughs> kind of a little mini deep dive, I'll call it. Um, so tell me a little bit about like what, so you were kind of directly below kind of a, somebody who was doing well, so a senior person who's doing well. And so you had a lot of exposure. Um, how did you said you impressed him? How did you impress him um, early on? How, what do you think set you apart? Um, to get that seat. It's pretty funny because I would say for the first year, um, I, I didn't impress him and we had a bit of a contentious relationship um, <laughs> because he thought I was underperforming. Um, and then something flipped um, sort of at the time that, you know, you, you can start to get your feet wet and actually understand what a bond is and what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and I would say that the, the number one thing in sales and trading is, you know, you just cannot be afraid to be the guy that's, that's trying too hard. Um, you know, I, I told this to, to interns all the time. It's like, sure, you might get laughed at from your friends if you literally run down the street to go get that lunch order or whatever it is. But people are going to know you as being the guy who's willing to do that 
um, and willing to go that extra mile. Um, so I think what what sort of flipped our relationship is when he saw that I was willing to put in the effort to see what his clients wanted, what they were doing, um, go above and beyond to make sure that everything was in order for our team's pod from trades to uh, color being sent out to our clients. Um, and I think more, more so than anything, it's just about how you position that with, with seniors and sales and trading. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot, you have a lot more room um, to go outside and find ways that you can add value than you do in banking. Um, because, you know, a lot of these sales and trading personnel are, are people that have been around the street for a while. Um, so what do you think you know, learning things like how, yeah, what do you think flipped? Like started, why did, what do you think flipped suddenly where you started figuring it out hey it would be really good he'd actually prefer did he just tell you hey you need to start giving me some more like feedback you need to start digging deeper into like what my clients want you know add more than just being a process you know process monkey <laughs> like what was the what was the feedback he gave you or was it just something that you grew into uh no i mean it was it was a lot of the feedback that he was giving me and i feel like at, at a certain point um, you you stop becoming afraid of your own shadow you stop worrying that you're going to screw up a trade mm -hmm. um and i think what he appreciated and what ultimately I appreciated and my junior people was when they wouldn't say, Hey, you know, can I show this bond to so-and-so or, Hey, should I do this? They would just, they would, wouldn't be afraid to just go do it. Um, and oftentimes they're going to be right. And when they're wrong, when you're wrong, you can get shown, um, sometimes disciplined, but, but mostly shown why you're wrong. Um, which actually proves to be a lot more valuable than just constantly asking for permission to do something. Got it. So it's almost being a little bit bold once you kind of feel like you have the ropes and like doing things that make sense. Like when you totally. got totally. it. Okay. And just having that confidence. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. So you're, you're kind of going through this, you're, you're getting your feet wet. You're starting to perform better. Your boss is happier with you. Um, it does pay take a big jump in that in terms of bonus. And do you mind talking a little bit? It can be total, it can be ranges. Um, in terms of pay, I know I know it's pretty standard the the bulge bracket pay coming out of school, but then you know bonus is a little bit more of a black box. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for me, the the analyst years were were pretty defined. Um, I would say that uh, that Nomura is probably a bit more levered in a sense that if you do really well there, you can get paid really well, mm -hmm. um, and if, if if your desk doesn't or things or you're not doing particularly well, um, that can also reflect on the downside. Um, so meaning, the meaning a donut, meaning you can get like, you can end up with a zero <laughs> if your desk does really poorly, but you get really, I, I haven't heard of any, any analysts ending up with zeros, but, um, yeah. it's, it's certainly more susceptible to swings in the market. Fair. Okay. Um, but you know, you get, you, you get the benefit of, of the flip side of that as well. Um, yep. so, you know, my analyst years were pretty defined. Um, standard street range um and then the associate year i spent i got one full associate paycheck there mm -hmm. um and that's when it took a big jump and so like 250 plus or around there in that range yeah 250 to 350 i would say would be i mean okay. we were, was fortunate enough to have have a good year at the mm -hmm. bank that year okay um fair enough so um it looks like you were promoted then right from after your second year straight to associate so. i was yeah yeah, and so tell me about the I, the thought process of staying on for a third year. I mean, for me, and uh, I think I, I'll put this in the uh, in the AMA, but mm -hmm. I was totally happy there. Um, you know, I think that uh, if you end up in a situation where you have a mentor that really backs you, um, 
you have a good client list, uh, your day-to-day in sales and training is pretty awesome. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not susceptible to deal flow related hundred hour weeks, et cetera. Um, I love the work that we were doing. Um, so it was really a no brainer for me at that point, um, to stay on for another year. You felt like the work was interesting enough and diverse enough where, and you were learning enough still in that third year where it made sense to stay. And plus, you, were, you, yeah, knew, I mean, you knew there was going to be a pay jump, too. So, I mean, that helps <laughs> with that, the promo. That always, that always does help. Yeah. So. Um, I think it, it, as um, an associate in sales and trading, especially for something that is uh, has as many products uh, that fall under mortgages, um, once people sort of trust you, you have a bit of freedom to go out and spend your time on a given day on what products you think are interesting and going to be value-add for your clients. Um, and to me, it was that sort of um, creativity, entrepreneurial aspect of it yeah. that uh, it was super fun. That's cool. So you basically, um, and is the associate promote, is that pretty standard now going two years analyst up to associate or should, you know, what should I think of in terms of like the split between uh, people who go analyst straight to associate versus like MBAs or is, is it more like CFAs in the trading side? I think in sales and trading, it's it depends very much so on the bank. Um, at least when I was going through this, mm-hmm. Nomura was pretty standard two years uh, as an analyst into an associate. Um, but I know that some of the bigger banks uh, make you do three. I think Goldman is still three, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so it's bank specific, but uh, at the end of the day, it's generally two or three years. Got it. And then, what would you say in terms of percentage of associates that are like MBA? versus versus not is it like pretty pretty small percentage on the trading side yeah for us it was a pretty small percentage um like more, really is, there, is there more cfa is there more the is there more cfas or just nothing or just people who go straight through um i would say that uh there are definitely more cfas than yep. uh mbas but most of the people um were just kind of rising through the ranks fair okay so you're you're there Things are going well. You're learning. Now you're getting paid pretty well. Why leave? Yeah, this is something that I really struggled with. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're just starting to get paid, man. Come on. <laughs> and you're, lo- you're enjoying your work. Was there, I don't know. Everyone told me I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> looking, looking back, were you crazy or have you done well? No. I, I think that for me, I'm, I'm really happy with the decision. Cool. Um, but I think that uh, had a few things not gone my way, I might be singing a different tune at this point. Um, so tell me know, a little bit that, about uh, your, your first startup kind of coming out of um, sales and training. Like what, what made you confident enough to actually make that leap to go from, you know, well into six figures to potentially nothing? Uh, naivete was definitely the first thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Fair. <laughs> a little bit of um, misplaced optimism. <laughs> Definitely some misplaced optimism. Yeah. Okay. Um, at, at the time, so I'll, I'll disclose here, Patrick. So um, mm-hmm. I'm working on a startup right now called FindEggs, um, mm-hmm. which I actually had the idea for while I was on the train floor. Um, at the time that I was thinking about quitting to start FindEggs, um, a friend of mine was executing a pivot on Seated, uh, which is a restaurant technology company. Mm-hmm. And he asked me to join. Um, 
in what we both thought was going to be a short-term capacity, you know, a few months consulting agreement to help him uh, figure out how to get the sales process fired up there, um, ended up staying there for almost a year and a half um, and seeing, through, seeing the company through a couple major funding rounds. So tell me a little bit about, um, so, about that in terms of, um, you know, deciding to join them and then having ended up you know, kind of sticking around there longer than you anticipated. Tell me, and was it initially viewed in your mind as a kind of a bridge to what you wanted to do? Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I considered it to be sort of a, a stepping stone, you know, getting my feet wet because at this point, you know, I, I, I knew very little about startups. Did they already have um, funding? Did they already have funding? When you they joined? did. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, so it was uh, it was a bit less risky than jumping in and, and trying to raise my own round. Mm-hmm. Um, with no startup experience um, and just sort of a Wall Street resume to point to. Um, and, you know, that I'm enormously thankful for uh, because if I had tried to start Find Eggs um, coming right out of Nomura, I am very confident that we would have gone belly up. Um, <laughs> Fair. So what did you learn? What did you learn at the at Seated? What, what kind of lessons do you feel like have been helpful now that you've kind of been a year in at, at Find Eggs? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, the one thing about startups that is extremely similar and I would argue even more uh, palpable is the effects of networking. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I would say it's seated. I learned the ropes and how to fundraise and how not to fundraise. Um, and that in the same way that if you're going to break into um, a bulge bracket from a non-target school, you really need to have some sponsorship or some really good story uh, it's, it's the same startups, um, you know, trying to, trying to raise money and so many people try and raise money by, you know, cold emailing VCs. Um, and this is why I say networking is even more important because that, that really just doesn't work. Uh, it's almost a test of entrepreneurship if you're able to get a meeting with a VC through a warm intro. Um, so it's, it's really networking dialed up to 11. So mm-hmm. that side of things, you know, it's something that you're just required to make the business run. You know, you, you need to have money in a, in a startup unless you've got some product that's, that's already operating in a break even. Um, so learning all about that and then learning just how much goes into a consumer business from growing customers to thinking about your unit economics, mm-hmm. um, doing everything you can to onboard businesses. I mean, that that is a side of things that uh, that the Wall Street mentality can prepare you to learn, but certainly doesn't prepare you with the knowledge for Tell me a little bit on the marketing side. Did you guys, were you, I mean, the unit economics, I'm sure, played into that in terms of cost of customer acquisition versus, you know, um, the average customer lifetime value, all that good stuff. Is that what you're talking about in terms of? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, when, when to pull those levers um, and make sure those unit economics are above water. Um, I feel like that's almost impossible. I feel like it's so hard to do. It's so easy to say, oh, here's my cost of customer. But for us, it's like so, I know for Wall Street Oasis especially, it's super hard for us. We get so much organic traffic, so much natural traffic that it's, you know, our cost of customer acquisition is actually incredibly low. But we also have a very low um, customer lifetime value because the majority of people who visit the site are just browsing and getting information and saying thanks and, and heading on their way uh, versus, you know, having something where it's a specific product or a specific transaction you're looking is like where the business is centered. Um, I think it's almost easier um, in the sense of like, you know, whether it's working earlier um, versus like, you know, trying to build totally. a community and then trying to monetize. You're just like literally from day one, it's like you have the product and now who's willing to pay for it, right? 
that's that's exactly right. I mean, it's yeah. a totally totally different calculation when yeah. uh, when things are defined versus undefined. Um, but I mean, like what the, the example that I'm giving is, you know, you and I obviously have thought a lot about this at this point. But mm-hmm. stepping out of a job on Wall Street, you know, even if you have a, a serious interest in startups, you're generally not going to be familiar with how a VC is going to think even about what we're talking about right now. Um, and it's sort of that exposure, learning like, you know, hey, we have a, a low customer acquisition cost because a lot of this traffic is organic versus, you know, what's our LTV on the other side of that? Uh, it's, it's almost similar to, you know, lingo that we use in bond trading or investment banking. It's, it's a different language that's spoken sort of in the venture communities. How would you suggest people learn more about that in terms of learning that language? Is there places they could go? Yeah, I mean, in the same way that I think um, everybody who's interested in Wall Street should be reading Matt Levine every morning, mm-hmm. um, Ben Thompson is sort of his counterpart in startups. Um, they're they're two two guys that I go out of my out of my way every single day to read um, when they're publishing. Um, and from there, it's 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 the news sources that are most startup-y and it'll cover the lingo most. So in the same way that you'd probably tell people, hey, if you want to familiarize yourself with the, the lingo of finance, you should read the FT or Wall Street yep. Journal. Um, you know, TechCrunch um, is, is sort of that catch-all, reading what comes out of uh, all these venture blogs. So mm-hmm. the preeminent venture firms are going to have uh, dedicated blogs, uh, first-round reviews, really good first-round capitals blog. Um, and those just have a wealth of information, um, especially because it's coming from this, this side that's actually doing the investing. Very cool. Um, so when you decided, you know, you ended up staying at Seated for a little bit longer than you expected, almost a year and a half, you said. What kind of made you jump when you did? Did you, like, was there a round completed and it was, like, a good time to kind of jump? Or I assume you still have some ownership in that business and you're helping them kind of time to time, or is it, like, a clean just buyout? No, um, you know, Bryce remains one of my, one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. Um, we looked at the business um, and sort of what we had shaped it into. Um, and there was a, a, I guess you'd call it a funding event that made us have confidence that, uh, that you know, the business is on the right trajectory. Um, and he knew that I had, had wanted to become uh, a CEO and a founder myself. Um, so was fortunate enough to, to take care of me and, and let me continue to be an advisor there. Um, and leave with most of my shares. So it was a, it was a good outcome and um, certainly not a clean break. I still incessantly check on, uh, <laughs> on him and the progress and, and the team. So you still have share, you still have some ownership there. Yeah, that's right. Great. Okay. And so you, you made the jump. How was that conversation with, I mean, you guys are good friends. I think I know when I started Wall Street Race was a good friend of mine. I know it was a tough conversation I had to have in terms of like early on. I mean, it was super early. It wasn't making any money, but I knew I wanted to kind of keep going with it. And so I ended up buying him out. Um, was it something, was it a tough discussion with him or is it something where you guys had already kind of discussed this kind of coming in? No, I mean, it was in a sense a tough discussion because uh, when I joined, I was, I was not supposed to be nearly as much of a, a figure there uh, as when I left. Um, Got it. So, you know, I, I started on what was, what was really supposed to be a consulting agreement um, to, to help get the restaurant sales side of things organized. And mm-hmm. I left as a, as a co-founder and, and the COO. Um, so as we were, we were just putting our heads down, um, you know, things are going well. Um, yep. And you start to, to, to take some ownership over that and you want to see it through to the end. Um, cool. But, you know, we'd always talked about me leaving to start find eggs. Uh, it was a question of when. 
Um, so I think it's never easy, you know, we work super well as a team, but um, that conversation has been something that we were open about, which I think is probably the, the thing that has been the most positive for our relationship is that it was not a, it was not a surprise. Why, why not? If things were going well, why not stay on with, with him and just get, you know, because you wanted to be the number one or because you felt like this other thing was eating at you in terms of like you had to go for it. What was, what was it? Cause I mean, if, if at least personally, I know if I found, if I was running a business with one of my good friends, we were both doing it full time and things were on a fast trajectory. I almost want to stay put. Um, was it just because you had totally. this other idea or like, it just surprises me that, you know, looks like they're, it does look like they're doing well. Um, just surprised me like that you would jump and, and take all that extra risk, on, <laughs> all that extra risk on all over again. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it was uh, that looking at sort of the idea and the drivers behind findings, I, I really thought this was a model. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of similarities to the seated model. Um, yeah. Uh, just, just a totally different space. Uh, I thought the timing was right. Um, I think that directionally, um, you know, findings is in the rental real estate space. Um, and you've seen a huge rise to prominence of, of the rental real estate space over the last 10 years. Um, and technology just hasn't caught up. Um, so we thought we had a really interesting model. Um, we had a, had a funding round pretty much already lined up. Um, and just thought that this, this space could be one that you could apply a similar sort of um, dynamic rewards and loyalty program to. Um, yeah. It really gave me the confidence. No, I think it's, you want to tell people what it is a little bit? I, I think it's genius, but you can go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, Findings is basically rethinking the entire renter and landlord dynamic. Um, most people don't know this, but 80% of the U.S. is still paying their rent physically. So most of that is by check, uh, cash, or money order. Um, so Findings first product lets anybody pay their rent from their smartphone. Um, and has an integrated rewards platform, so you'll actually get rewards for paying your rent. Um, and ultimately, what we're trying to do is is be the one software company that dominates uh, every aspect of renting an apartment, from finding it, applying, um, signing your lease, uh, all the way to paying your rent and daily interactions. Uh, we just know that this is such a pain point for consumers that we can solve first. Yes, it um, is. It gets yes, our it foot is. in the door. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Is it is it proprietary, or you're allowed to talk a little bit about how you actually execute that? Or is it like, in terms of the software, is it some sort of software where it's like a bill pay type function? Like, because I know I can send checks through like my online banking. Is that the idea, where it's just people are putting in kind no, of? No, it's, it's, it's actually it's actually quite similar to that, um, and, and it's interesting. Um, you know, we've we've taken the process of. of getting your check to your landlord and we've automated that um, yep. with, with a much better user experience than your bank bill pay yep. um, as well as an integrated rewards platform. And then when you're looking to move, you can actually take your history of rent payments and share that with your next landlord. Cool. Um, so it's, it's quite similar to bank bill pay. The difference being that, you know, it's our core business um, and our yeah. first business and banks, for, you know, this, this is not a feature they want to promote. Um, they don't right. make any money off of bank bill pay. So the software generally refl- reflects that. It's, it's pretty clunky. And, yes, it does. Uh, <laughs> I use bill pay plenty of times, so I know it does. Cool. Okay. Well, man, anything else, you know, just any advice you have to people who are, um, you know, looking back at either your younger self, your advice you'd give yourself or advice you'd give to the, the younger people in the community in terms of career, startups, anything before we call it? Um, you know, I think the one thing that has, has certainly been reflected on Wall Street Oasis uh, that helped me really early on to discover is 
you know, I owe everything, um, uh, all the modest achievements that I've had uh, in my professional career to the power of networking. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, no, no truer words than, you know, it's 100% of the shots you don't take. Um, I think that, you know, the first step is to really refine a message and run it by a lot of people and make sure that you sound humble um, and eager and, uh, and sending that to as many people that are one or two degrees removed from you as possible will lead to some really interesting conversations. For sure. Let's, uh, let's end on that, I think, humble and eager. Maybe the title of this pod. (laughs) Anyways, man, (laughs) thanks so much for for taking the time. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.